Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How is everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, the Focus Compounding Podcast. I want to thank everyone so much for tuning in. I am sitting by myself today. Actually, it was such a force of habit to say alongside my partner, Jeff Gann, but I am by myself. But we do have a very special guest, Mr. Vitaly Kassanelson. He is one of the pioneers in the blogosphere space. And, um, you know, when um, he reached out or his assistant reached out to bring him on the podcast, we were super excited, Jeff and myself, uh, because him and Jeff started blogging right around the same time on all things investing related. So we we're certainly excited to bring him on the podcast here today. Um, if you don't know him, you definitely should. He's a CEO. Of Investment Management Associates. He has his CFA. He writes at the popular website Contrarian Edge, which is how I'm sure a lot of people know him. And he's also written two books Active Value Investing in the Little Book of Sideways Markets. Vitaly, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you, Andrew. It's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for, for coming on. So, where are you from? So, as you can tell from my accent, I was born in uh, Alabama. Oh yeah, <laughs> I know it. no, I, I, I no, I was born in Russia and I moved to United States when I was 18 years old in 1991. Wow, yeah, that's and, that's, uh, that's fascinating. And so I, I think my my whole family lived in Denver for almost 28 years. Yeah. Oh wow, so you're and you're still in Denver right now? Yes. Wow, yeah. that that is awesome. So one of the things I do and and sort of the way I like to start all these interviews when I bring guests on mm. the podcast is I have this and I've always had this for whatever reason this fascination with stories and how you could be doing one thing and feel like you know, you know, have it all figured out um, and then you meet somebody or something changes in your life and all of a sudden you're on this completely different path. Um, so today we're going to be talking about your story and maybe you could just sort of start and go back to um, you know, how you got into investing and sort of lead it all the way up to what you're doing today and uh, really tell us about your story. So um, I'm going to start from the end a little bit. So I have a, my son, my oldest child, my son, Jonah, is 18 years old. And I was kind of thinking about this a few months ago. When I was 18 years old, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. And the only reason I was thinking about it because my son, Jonah, today has no idea what he wants to do when he grows up. And I remember how terrified I was that I had absolutely, like, I, I knew I did not want to be, I was, at the time, I was uh, I was still in Russia. I was still attending uh, Murmansk Marine College, which was basically a way for me, like, I basically went to the school so I would not have to go to the Russian army. At the time, Russia had a draft army, and I heard it changed, but then, like going to the Russian army was almost like serving um, a two or three year prison sentence because there was a lot of abuse. It was uh, usually you go to the army, they would send you two or 3,000 miles away. It just was a kind of very, like it's really, at the time, it was not much different than going to, you know, to prison, really. Just that's how parents treated that. It wasn't because of wars. It's just, you know, because at the time when, uh, like 1991, Russia was not fighting anybody anymore. But anyway, so at the time, I, you know, I was going to a Marine College, and I was like, I knew that I absolutely hated what I was, you know, studying, and I did not know what I wanted to do. And then, luckily, my my, my family moved to the United States, and um, I discovered that, you know, I'm actually wired fairly well you know, to do computer stuff. So uh, as a hobby, I became fairly good with computers. And um, and, and uh, so when I went to school, when I went to CU Denver, I knew I wanted to do something in business, but I didn't know exactly want, what I wanted. Maybe I thought maybe I would be a lawyer, maybe do something with computers. And then I got a job with an investment firm, and they hired me because I had computer skills. And maybe six months into this job, I realized, my God, I love this. I love finance. I love building financial models. I love, you know, I love thinking about businesses. So I was maybe 21 years old then. So I changed uh, my major for the last time to finance. And that was it. That's, you know, I knew I wanted to invest in. And that's basically how I got into it. 
Wow, yeah, that that's sort of certainly interesting. And I'm always curious just to hear about how the bug bit them, right? It's kind of like um, my partner Jeff, his dad um, gave him a book, which is actually security analysis. And he said, you know, you're always talking about investing. And I heard about this book by Benjamin Graham. And it sounds like this is exactly what you're talking about. So why don't you check out this book? And that and Jeff, like, that's how he got into investing. And um, Warren mm-hmm. Buffett's case, for example, his dad was a broker. And that's probably how he, you know, sort of the bug bit him. And my my case was a little bit similar to that. So I'm always curious to hear about how people got investing. So that's certainly interesting. So did, was the firm that you were at, was it more of a value-oriented approach? I'm always kind of curious to hear how people's sort of investing evolution goes on. Um, how was that for you? Yeah, so it's very interesting. So so the firm I joined at the time was a PVG asset management. And uh, I was, you know, so that was a firm where kind of was introduced uh, to investing, but they didn't need me. They did not need somebody helping with investing. So I left and I joined this firm, and this was like 1997. So this is 22 years ago, and when I joined this firm, uh, our approach was a little bit uh, kind of growth at reasonable price. We would buy high quality companies, we would pay fair, you know, fair prices for them, but you know, they would grow their earnings and that would be the source of our return for the most part. Not the price, you know, just the growth of earnings. Over time, so this is how I started really kind of investing. Um, in 2001, you know, market collapsed. Our stocks did great. Or, you know, so uh, because we want high quality companies that weren't, you know, that, you know, would, you know, that were more or less fairly valued, but they weren't, but they, they were, they were, uh, we did not benefit from the dot com boom, but we, you know, but at the same time we benefited from the dot com bust. Sure, yeah. And the, and then the couple, the years, the, the the few years that followed, I saw that our stocks did fairly poorly, and this is how I kind of stumbled on a, on my sideways market thesis because I realized I started to look back and because I thought, well, we own high quality companies, why aren't they doing so well? And then I realized uh, that. You know, there's such a thing as market cycles, and that um, in the uh, when I started in this business, I focused a lot more on the growth. I did not spend as much time thinking about margin of safety. Okay, and so two things happened. Uh, number one, uh, when I realized that you know when the market uh, when the market uh, go through uh, you know from boom to bust, um, then you're gonna have a price to earnings compression. And that automatically kind of made me a value investor because I realized, well, when I buy stocks, I want to make sure that they have margin of safety. But it also made me look at the market cycles, and this is how basically, I come, you know, this is how active value investing came about. Uh, so, uh, one thing, uh, Andrew, one thing I found is that some of the most important moments in our lives happen because of some kind of pain. Like, you know, not making money in 2002, 2003, or maybe I've maybe even lost money, um, was a very painful experience. But there were so many, like, I'm so glad I went through those experiences because it shaped, shaped me. First, it turned me into a value investor. And second of all, it helped me, you know, it's helped me to write, kind of, it was an instigator for me to write two books. That sure. Yeah, and, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting how, I guess, the experiences that people have um, even in the investing world, but not only that, but also in life, it really shapes the way that they, you know, they invest, the way that they look about things, and all things related to that. So that that's pretty interesting. Yes, I. I think the pain is something that, when when you when you have a when you as any investor will go through a period of time, when investing causes pain. It's just it's the. If you don't go through the period of time, that means, you know, you're not doing, you know, either you're lying to yourself, or you're not, or you're not doing something right, because your 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 style will always going to be at some point is going to be out of sync with the market, and um, if you, to me, I, I look at the periods in my life when it's you know when I, when investing caused me, caused me pain, as probably the biggest growth spurs in me as an individual as an investor. For sure. Sure. Um, no, I, I think that's, I think that's, um, you know, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, not only in, in investing, but um, in life as well. And I think Joel Greenblatt talks about all the time, you know, value investing works because it doesn't always work. And if it did always work, then people, you know, then it wouldn't always work. 
you know, because yes. it would just get sort of arbitraged away. So I definitely um, agree with you on that. So tell me a little bit about your, you and you spoke about this a little bit earlier, um, the sideways markets thesis and, and what's that all about? Sure. So if you look back over the last hundred years, and now I'm going to use a few terms, so I need to define them ahead of time. So you have two types of markets. You have a cyclical cyclical markets and a secular markets. Cyclical markets, basically, it's all about time frame. It's a, a time period of maybe five years or less. And again, those are very vague definitions. And then you have secular markets, you know, secular cycles that last five years or longer, maybe five to 15 years or so, five to 20 years. So what I, when, I, when you look historic at U.S. markets, you find that every time we had a secular bull market uh, that you know, lasted maybe 15, 20 years, the market that followed was not a bear market, but was kind of a sideways market. So market going up and down, there's a huge amount of volatility. So kind of huge amount, a large number of uh, cyclical bull and bear markets inside of them. But at the end, they kind of, for 15 years or so, they basically go nowhere. And uh, I wanted to understand why that happens. So I saw the chart and it kind of, the chart intrigued me. And one thing I realized, Think about uh, if you look at the stock prices and you completely ignore dividends for a second, the stock prices go up in the long run for two reasons. It's kind of a very simple mathematical equation. It's really earnings growth and price earnings expansion or contraction. Uh, you know when people say that on every stock prices, you know, your stock market trade about 15 times earnings? Uh-huh. Sure. Okay. So if you keep that number constant at 15 times earnings, you would basically not have bull and kind of side, you know, side bull markets or bull markets. You would, you stock markets would basically grow, grow about five or six percent a year, and that would be the growth of earnings or growth of GDP. Okay, so you would basically, it would be not quite a straight line chart, but almost a straight line chart up, but it would be a very gradual, five or six percent a year. Okay. Um, you're going to have periods where the earnings grow a little bit faster or lower because profit margins go up or down. But on average, it would be very similar to growth of the economy. Now, when you introduce price to earnings, that's where it gets interesting because what happens, price to earnings goes through the cycle of like a pendulum swing. It goes from below average through, through, uh, through average to above average. And that, like, that swing from below to above basically adds a return on top of the earnings growth. So if earnings grow in 6% a year, okay, and price to earnings grows from six times earnings to, I don't know, 25 or 20, 25, whatever, then that adds to the return of the stock market. So suddenly returns are not 6% a year, but maybe 10, I mean, uh, just from stocks. I'm, remember, I'm ignoring dividends. Uh, 10 or 15 or 20%. The only problem with that is that as the price to earnings, you know, when as the, the pendulum swings to the extreme, at some point it's going to mean revert, and it always does. And that mean reversion takes away that extra extra return you got, like this additional four or five percent return you got, and that's how you get. So your if you had a if again if economy is growing five percent a year and price to earnings declining now from twenty five to to ten then your 5% you know, return from uh, earnings growth is, is taken away by PE compression. And that's how sideways markets happen. So, uh, and so if you think about it, in the long run, returns for stocks were about, let's say, 10 11%. So 6% of it came from earnings, uh, basically price going up, and another 4 or 5% of it came from uh, dividends. So what happens basically in sideways markets, if you look at the last sideways market we had at the time of my writing, it was 66, 82. You, markets in 1982, they were at the same level where they, where they started 16 years before. And the only return you received during that time was dividends. That's, and and that, that's it. Um, so that was my thesis when I sat down to write Active Value Investing in uh, 2005. And uh, Active Value Investing came out in 2007. And then in 2010, I took Active Value Investing, which was basically a book written for people like you and me. Like it's a 270 pages, 
75 Charts and Tables, very technical book. And then in 2010, I took that book and basically simplified it for kind of your neighborhood dentist. Now, somebody who is a, you know, who is a smart person, but who doesn't necessarily uh, know all the lingo and doesn't want to go through 75 charts and, charts and tables. So the Sideways Markets book had only five tables and charts altogether. And it's a one-third the size of the original book. Um, the problem, though, what we discovered since, that where what I did not see when I you know when I you know when I was working on the, my first book, I did not realize that we can have interest rates go from normal level to zero to negative, and I think that changed kind of the DNA of the stock market a little bit, because you we basically in '99 we you know the valuation was the highest ever, and you would expect when you have a very high valuations they go from one extreme to another. But what happened was the value, you know, the price earnings went from, I forget, let's say 30 times earnings, and it got to 15, and it stayed there for about a, you know, a month or two during the crisis, and then went up higher. So it never really kind of, the mean reversion never happened. And the reason it hasn't really happened because the interest rates declined so much. And uh, so I feel like my books are more relevant today than they were when I wrote them originally because now the you know, valuations are pushing new highs again. And, uh, you know, and just the, the, you know, the sprint of mean reversion has just been loaded more and more sure. you know, every day. Sure. So what, what's your opinion, and that's all very fascinating, what's your opinion on where we are currently in the market? Uh, we are basically, you know, if you look at almost any measure, you know, price to book, which is not necessarily my favorite one, but if you look at uh, price to sales, if you look on price to semi-normalized earnings, we are we are either either the highest or second highest you know level ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are kind of competing now with 1999 levels. So yeah, and, and we we definitely yeah. I mean, by all measures, I always say I mean the market is expensive. So how do you make money in a sideways market, and how would you I guess position or um, what do you think would be a good position for investors going forward on how to structure their portfolio to sort of maybe either take advantage or mitigate against it? Um, you know, if the you know if if we swing the other way. So, I would suggest investment becomes an active value investor, in the sense that when you look at stocks, first of all, you ask for significant margin of safety. Okay, uh, that's that's point number one. Point number two, when you value stocks, it's very important to normalize, uh, to realize that at some point in time, your the interest rates are not going to be. I mean, it's very it's possible. I, I don't, you know nobody knows, but it's very likely that interest rates at some point can be much higher. So therefore, in your analysis, you want to make sure that you're not you know you're not stuck with uh, interest you know two percent treasury bonds but uh, using semi-normal interest rates in your analysis. That's point number two. Point number three, you want to make sure that you don't fall into relative valuation trap. That the company you're buying is cheap on its own in the sense that the, you, know, you, do, you basically do analysis kind of more or less in present value of future cash flows versus, oh, this company trades at 23 times earnings well, it's kind of expensive, but its competitors trade at 28. Sure. Well, just just because competitors are, just you know, competitors more maybe overvalued as well, um, and uh, also, you should not be if, if you're looking for if you're looking for companies to buy and you don't see enough companies that meet your criteria, just have cash. Uh, so you have to be somewhat opportunistic, and uh, those are kind of the top few things that come to mind yeah no and i think that's great and you know definitely uh that'll be great for all of our, all of our listeners so i want to go back to your early 20s and earlier you had said that you joined a firm is and was that when you joined investment management associates or is that a different yes. firm okay wow so you've been with them then since your early 20s and oh no i'm sorry let me clarify so the i joined ima in 1997 my first job was I work. I joined another investment firm. So got it. So you, so you want to go back to I guess to 90, 94, 95, I guess. Yeah, That's, yeah. So what's we could actually fast forward to ninety seven then. So you go from being an analyst to the CIO 
to now the CEO. I'm kind of mm-hmm. curious to hear about how that all transitioned. And obviously, you made your career out of IMA. And I mean, when you first mm-hmm. joined on, what was your experience like as an analyst? Were you just, you know, modeling out a lot of stuff on Excel and doing a bunch of financial models? And then how did you eventually make that transition to CEI? CIO uh, to eventually become the CEO of the company. So it's kind of interesting, um, and I think this would be a good lesson for your uh, for your listeners. So when I joined AMA, my mentor and now my partner Mike Khan was basically a person I tried to replicate. And Mike, you know, Mike is uh, 30 years older than me, so he grew up in a very different era of where you did analysis by reading annual reports and reading value line. So that was his way to analyze companies. And at first, I tried to copy Mike. And it took me a while to realize that I have to find myself. So just because Mike did things in a certain way doesn't mean that I should be doing things the same way. Just, just as, a, you know, like I, just like Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett does not use spreadsheets. doesn't mean that you and I should not be using spreadsheets. Because maybe Warren Buffett's brain is so much more powerful than ours so he can do spreadsheets in his head. I can't. So, um, so it took me a while to realize that I have to find myself. I have to find kind of what works for me, the, what's, you know, what's the best way for me to analyze companies. Um, so I found that, for instance, that I really like building financial models because, not because it helps me to forecast. No, because uh, when I build a financial model for a company, I tend to understand the business better. I, you know, kind of, I, it makes me start thinking about, okay, what really matters for this company? Okay, is it profit margins, sales growth? Uh, how much capital does it take to grow the business? So I start thinking, you know, so by building the model, it's almost like if I was a craftsman, like, and I was crafting something, I start, you know, kind of uh, thinking with my hands. It's kind of the same experience for me when I build financial models. I, I start thinking through spreadsheets. And it, for me, personally, it you know it helps me to think that way. So if you know if somebody listens to this and says and says that doesn't work for me, that's absolutely fine. But you just need to find that works for you. So so at first I had to become so I had to kind of it took me a few years to realize it, but I had to find what works for me as an analyst. Over time I also had to discover what works for me as a portfolio manager. And um and so how much, how much time do you spend on the, I don't know, macro forecasting? Uh, do you spend no time or do you spend a lot of time? And uh, I found, and I think I'm going to quote uh, Seth Klarman, who says, who said, uh, we worry macro and invest micro. So I kind of, that's how I kind of, you know, that's how I look at uh, macro forecasting. I'm trying not to be a weatherman and worry about next hike of interest rates or what the GDP number is going to be next quarter. I spend no time on this because I have absolutely zero competitive advantage there. But I, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about potential risks, kind of the potential uh, kind of climate change in events that could change the uh, you know landscape of investing, you know, significantly. I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm trying to build a portfolio today for environment where interest rates will be either very high or very low. I want to make sure that companies in my portfolio can withstand both. I want to make sure that uh, there is a tremendous bubble in China. So I want to make sure our portfolio has little exposure to that. So this is kind of when I think, this is how I think about micro, uh, macro, I'm sorry. Um, and then as a transition to CEO, that's a very, that's basically takes you away from portfolio management and analyst, and now you start thinking as a businessman. Because as CEO, in addition to analyzing stocks and running portfolios, now you run a business. And that's a very different skill set from it's not something you learn in school. And, uh, and Warren Buffett said at some point that uh, uh, running business made him, uh, made him a better investor and, better, you know, and investing helped uh, made him a better manager, you know, CEO. I would argue the same thing. So it's Running the IMA has made me appreciate the value, for instance, value of people. So that had, uh, it made me a better investor because today we spend so much more time thinking about management 
than just thinking about return on capital, for instance. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I would agree with that. I mean, do you think analysts um, oftentimes forget because obviously they're reading annual reports, they're reading filings that like yes, it really is a real business with real people, and they sort of maybe don't give that enough credit. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I can see that happen. I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I can see how it's very easy uh, as you, when you get focused on numbers a lot and when you try to predict what the earnings are going to be next quarter, et cetera, or you forget that the, you know, that really at the end of the day, it's, it's the people who are going to can, um, can create, can create a destroy value. So for instance, uh, let, let, me, let me give you a couple examples, like one, one big example of how things changed for us over the last you know, three to five years. Today, probably two-thirds of the companies I own, the management owns a good chunk of the company, like sometimes 10 to 20% or 30%. And to me, that's very important because that means every time they make a decision, it doesn't mean they won't make a mistake, but they won't make a mistake because of an indifference or because... They're just trying to maximize their tenure with the company uh, because they're, they're really going to be building moats around the business. And um, also, when I own a company where management owns a lot of the stock, when things go wrong, I know that these people will be working day and night trying to turn the company around because, again, their incentives are aligned with ours. You know, they, they want, you know, if this company goes down, for me, it's a 5% position. For them, that's 90% of their net worth. So it matters a lot more for them than actually that's, that's for me. And also for that reason, like, uh, and this is uh, from a business perspective, all my liquid net worth is invested in the same stocks as my clients own. So, so my, I want my clients to know that when I buy a company, that company, you know, for them, that company is going to go in my portfolio as well. In fact, basically my personal account, I am a client of the firm, basically. So, and therefore, my, you know, I'm, I will never make a decision. Uh, I will make mistakes, but it's, not, it's never going to be because of, I'm indifferent. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I, that um, aligning those incentives obviously is, is great, even coming from a client perspective, because they know that you're on the same side as them. Yes. So I'm kind of curious about your overall investing process, right? I'm a, I'm mm -hmm. a big process person. So like, for example, when you first find out, find out about a company, like, do you screen for it? Um, do you kind of just come across it uh, in blogs? How does that happen? And then maybe from there, take us through, um, you know, when you first get interested in an idea, ultimately to the point of buying it and putting it in the portfolio. Yeah, so we try to kind of systematize the randomness of price uh, of a stock discovery. So because I find that for us, finding ideas is completely random. You know, it's a, but I want to make sure that I create enough opportunities for me to have this randomness. In other words, I'm sure just like you, you know, I read, you know, I read a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, magazines. I, you know, I spend a lot of time reading different blogs. I uh, read letters by other investors I admire, uh, video screening, and, you know, video screening, uh, we have a watch list of companies we looked at in the past and said, okay, this may be interesting, let's revisit it later. So all those things kind of maximize our future opportunity set. So it's, you know, help us to possibly finding new ideas. Uh, sometimes I'll be looking at a company for six months or a year, or sometimes longer, until one day an insight comes to me and I suddenly start looking at the company from a different perspective because suddenly I have an insight. And that basically means my subconscious was kind of working in the background, you know, kind of un like, uh, analyzing it for me, more or less. Um, so, but let's say I found a company. And uh, so the first thing I usually do, I go and read the annual report because I'm really asking myself a question, do I want to be in this business? If, if I want to be in this business, then if I, if I read the annual report, and I find this is a business I can understand. This is the business I want to be in. You know, that means it's a high-quality company. Then I, you know, then I start thinking about, okay, well, you know, what is the company's worth? 
And uh, you know, so if you look at, and I'm, again, I'm overgeneralizing right now, but I'm basically want to buy high quality company and I want to buy cheap. And you would ask me, what, what is quality? And I, I think quality is a term that's been thrown out around a lot, you know, by investors. Sure. Uh, Warren Buffett probably provided the best definition. Um, if the stock market was closed for 10 years, would you feel comfortable owning this company? And uh, so the, interestingly that when you look at a company and you, you know, and you ask yourself that question, suddenly a lot, few, a lot fewer companies kind of pass your quality test. And uh, especially today when the kind of the pace of change in technology has destroyed, you know, a lot of companies that used to be quality companies. Um, but basically for us, quality would mean a couple of things. So sustainable competitive advantage, which kind of answers the question number one, right? You know, that's uh, recurrence of revenue, uh, a great balance sheet. And then the, you know, the final element, which is as important to us, more important to us now than ever before is management. And really kind of ask ourselves, you know, how well they, you know, how, how well management allocates capital and how well they run the business, which are two different questions, uh, and two very different and very important questions. Uh, in fact, I would argue that comp uh, when you analyze larger companies, you want to spend more time thinking about uh, capital allocation. And when you look at the smaller companies, how well, uh, you shouldn't ignore capital allocation, but you find that management actually can add or destroy more value uh, by decision, the operational decisions they make. Yeah, and, and I would agree with that. And I guess, um, you know, do you guys concentrate or are you, are you more diversified? How many stocks do you guys typically own? So we usually own about 20 to 30 stocks. So I, in the, in the world of Manish Pabrai, we are very diversified. <laughs> uh, in the world of mutual funds, we are very focused. Sure. So it's, it depends what your bogey is. Yeah, no, yeah, and I think that's great. And you said you're looking to buy what you think are high quality companies that, you know, trading at cheap prices. Yes. What type of businesses do you, do you typically look for? Are you sort of agnostic to the industries and sectors and everything in regards to that? You just go where value is? Or how do you guys think about that? So the answer to a question would be yes. Nice. <laughs> so, okay, no, but uh, there are certain industries we usually avoid because they rarely have high-quality companies. And I'll give you a few examples. Uh, like, for instance, uh, companies that have a significant exposure to commodities, usually those companies have a, they don't have high returns on capital. They're usually very levered. Uh, so we don't we usually have very little exposure to kind of come you, know, you know kind of commodity linked companies. Um, other than that, it's fair game for everything. So I'm happy to look at anything I can understand. So uh, you know our portfolio historically. So from a so historically we had a we owned very few kind of commodity linked cyclical companies. But other than that, you know, I go over the values. Sure. Yeah, and that's interesting. And I'm also kind of curious, I guess, as a follow-up question from earlier when you were talking about investors uh, should start to love to hold cash and, I guess, opportunistically mm -hmm. hold cash. How much cash do you guys typically have maybe on average in your portfolios? So this is, a, this is more like a uh, – if I um, – okay, so what we do here is a little bit different from other firms. Um, every, we treat every account differently. So clients that came to us, let's say a year ago, two years ago, would own different uh, would own different stocks, or their portfolio would look different from the clients that started to us today. So clients that been with us for a while, they may be 70, 80% invested. Clients that came to would come to us today would probably 30% invested. Because what happened was when we bought stocks, you know, let's say a year ago and they went up, at the time when we bought them, they had margin of safety. Now that margin of safety may be not completely gone, but not enough for us to buy it for a new, uh, for a new account. So therefore, we're going to have a very you know, large dispersion of how much cash we have based on the kind of uh, 
uh, how new how new uh, basically on when uh, when we got the client. Sure. Yeah. No. And I think that's um, that's very prudent. What has your experience been going from an analyst to actually managing the portfolio, and I guess thinking in terms of being a portfolio manager? I think the biggest, the most important experience was I when I was an analyst. To me, first of all, I did not see stocks in the context of the portfolio. I would, you know, that's point number one. But point number two, and this is a, I did not see, but uh, I did not link portfolios and clients. And let me explain what I mean. For because we run separate accounts. In other words, we actually I got to meet or to talk to every every single client of the firm. Now, when I make investment decisions. I actually am thinking about the doctor who is money managing, who worked for 30, 40 years, and I manage 90% of his net worth. So therefore, every decision I make, there's a tremendous amount of responsibility, which, which uh, when I was an analyst, I didn't recognize that it was there. Because to me, it was more about, you know, how much is this company worth, you know, it, you know, how, you know, how much marginal safety we have, et cetera. Now, you know, as a portfolio manager and a CIO and CEO, there is a new level of responsibility that I did not know existed before I became a portfolio manager. Sure. Yeah, and I could I could definitely um, relate to that. Yeah, that that's uh, that's definitely very interesting. So let's go back to 2006. And as I said, you were um, again you were the pioneer in the blogosphere space, which I always joke about Jeff being that other guy as well. And before we went on, uh, or before we went, like I guess when I was doing prepping for this, I actually went and I on WaybackMachine.com and I was seeing when your first post was, and it looks like it was the end of 2006. So you know, I guess blogging about investing wasn't very popular back then. What prompted you to start a blog? And, um, you know, Contrarian Edge obviously is very popular. And I guess, you know, how has writing impacted you as an investor? So, Andrew, I got to admit, I never considered myself a blogger. And let me tell you why. Because, so I started writing, I think, in 2004, 2005 uh, for the street.com. And um, at the time, street.com was... You know, when they, when they hired me to start writing for them, I, you know, they paid, you know, they didn't pay me very much and they were overpaying me because I, <laughs> because I was horrible. But I really, when I started writing for them, I realized how much I love writing. And over time, I, I never looked myself as a blogger. I, I always thought myself as kind of a, as a guy who writes articles. And um, in 2006, I think I started writing for Financial Times and the Financial Times uh, then put my articles behind firewall. And also the time, at the same time, I was teaching investment class at CU Denver, and I wanted my students to read my articles. So I started to put my articles on a website, which I guess now it's called a blog. So that's how I guess I became a blogger. I never really considered myself a blogger because I was, for the most part, actually, over the last, what, 15 years, I've written articles like Financial Times, Market Watch, Fortune. So I kind of, I don't know, I never, I never thought of myself as a blogger, but I guess I am because I, I guess I have a website and it's, I host it, so I'm a blogger, I guess. Um, but most of my articles really, probably 80% of them were published somewhere else first and then were published on my site. And that's the kind of the... And that's how, that's how I became a blogger. Um, about the process of writing, I find that that's probably the best thing that ever happened to me, like as an investor. Because writing makes you think so much more and so much more focused about topics than anything else you can possibly do. And um, I write on a daily basis. I think I... I get up maybe 5, 5.30 every day or something like this. And I write for about, you know, for a couple of hours a day in the morning. And then I come to work and I don't write anymore. And then until the next morning. And I find it that it's the only reason I can talk about complex topics today, some, some of the complex topics, because I've written about them in the past. And uh, writing basically helps me to organize my thoughts and go much deeper than I would otherwise possibly could go into a topic. And also, 
it basically replaces meditation for me. Because for, for a couple hours a day, I put my, you know, I wake up in the morning, I put my headphones on, I put classical music, I listen to music and I write. And uh, I feel that this is, if I, if I did not write, I would not have, you know, my investing IQ would have been so much lower than it is today. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it's definitely just a way to tune out the world. And you're really, when you're writing for other people, I always say, you're actually writing for yourself, right? And you're just sharing it with other people. Um, this is kind of interesting. So I, uh, this may take us into a different rabbit hole. I just finished a 29-page article about Tesla and EV industry. Like, you know, uh, uh, um, and, um, and I basically, what caused me to write it, I bought Model 3, and I loved the car so much, I, I realized this is actually going to change the auto industry tremendously. And, but I really wanted to understand it better. So I wrote a 29-page article for myself, which is going to end up you know, being published somewhere. And it's probably going to be maybe eight articles, not one. Yeah. Uh, okay. But, but I literally, when I was writing it, I didn't think about length. I didn't think about all the constraints that you have when you write, you know, when you, when you write Financial Times, they tell you, you know, your story has to be 800 to 850 words because you're constrained by, you know, by, by space. Here I was, and I do this a lot more now. I basically write for myself and then because I'm curious in this, you know, and then it gets published. So I, I guess that's probably one of the biggest uh, transitions that happened to me over time. I've been writing a lot more for myself and um, and that's and, and now because most of my articles are published in a uh, uh, online, I don't have to worry about space as much. Or and I also learned that even if I write a long article, some most of the time it could be broken up into two or three articles. So that's I've done plenty of that actually too. Yeah, that's fantastic, and I, I that's that's great to hear. I mean, we love writing, and my partner Jeff, he's when we've talked about certain things within our firm and um, you know, yeah. he spends 100% of his time on investing. He has always said, I just want to be able to do two things. I want to be able to have the option to write about whatever I want, whenever I want, and I want to be able to focus on investing. So obviously writing is very important to him too. I'm kind of curious, what's your 10,000 foot overview? I know you, you, you spent a lot, uh, 29 pages on writing about Tesla, but what's your 10,000 foot overview on the company? Uh, it's actually ended up being very different than it was like maybe a month ago. So I'm actually starting to appreciate a lot more the, the, what they have accomplished. And uh, I realized that there is a much, like maybe if you and I talked a month ago, I would have said that the probability of success is probably not very high. And now I would say it's much higher than I thought it would be. And the reason for that, because what I realized that when we when we when we look at the electric car and you look at the IC internal combustion engine car, uh, they look very similar, right? I mean, they they kind of you know there may be different form factors, you know, maybe different design, etc. But they look you know you a lot of times you can't tell the difference, you know, if it's like you would drive on the road and you see Nissan and you don't know like for instance is that Nissan gas powered or it's a you know battery powered Nissan, right? But what you realize that the Yes, the outside looks different. I mean, the the outside looks you know look very similar, but the insides are incredibly different, and the difference is so dramatic that it's a not just a, it's not just like a. I'll give you an analogy. In 2004, uh, we owned the Nokia. Actually, no, we Nokia like in 2004, Nokia stock got uh, pummeled because. Uh, Motorola came out with flip phones and Nokia did not have flip phones. And so Motorola sales jumped and Nokia sales stagnated. So we bought a lot of Nokia, you know, Nokia stock and it's six months later, Nokia came out with flip phones and the stock doubled. So we made a lot of money. In 2008, a year or two after, no, maybe two years after uh, uh, iPhone came out, Nokia stocks got Nokia stock got uh, you know declined again, and because of iPhone, and I was very smart. Then I thought, well, you know, I've seen this, you know, I've seen this movie before, 
you know, they'll come up as a new phone and they'll be fine. Well, what I didn't realize at the time that where, you know, flip phone and a flip phone, a clamshell phone, uh, or whatever, the normal uh, flip phone versus the uh, whatever chocolate shaped phone, whatever chocolate bar shaped phone, they were in the same domain. It just, you know, it's, you know, it was, you know, it's basic transition from one kind of hardware factor to another. Transition from a, a dumb phone to smartphone was a was a fundamental shift in domains. In other words, you went really from a smart uh, from a uh, from a uh, from a dumb phone to a computer that also happens to make phone calls. But actually, making phone calls was not the most important feature of the computer. And Nokia has failed miserably at that transition. And the reason they have because they you know they they failed at this transition because their skills they did you know they had a very different skill set. You know, to you know, to be good, you know, um, to make good smartphones, you know, uh, knowing how to make hardware was not a good, you know, was not enough. You also had to write software. You have to also design new soft, you know, user 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 interface. The skills that uh, Nokia really did not have. In addition to that, and this is very important, when you shift from one domain to another, like like from dumb phones to smartphones. Your assets could very quickly become your liabilities. Because if you think about Nokia, at the time, I don't know, it employed thousands and thousands of engineers. But those engineers did not have the skill set that was needed to create smartphones. Because they needed to be, you know, they need, Nokia needed to employ a lot more software engineers and less engineers that focused on a whatever, on plastics or whatever that, you know, goes into dumb phones. So, Therefore, so to make things more difficult, Nokia would have to lay off a lot of people, and it would have to bring new talent, and and it would have to basically to compete with somebody with, with Apple. They had to look. Uh, they needed. Uh, they need. They basically need to re-engineer the firm kind of in mid-flight, which was very, which is very difficult to do. So, if you apply this analogy to cars today, I would argue the transition from ICE cars to Electric cars is of the same complexity of magnitude. Um, uh, so, General Motors basically has to continue to make like ICE cars, but it also has to invest into electric cars, and that and that means it has to hire people who are not tainted by by the knowledge they have from the from IC cars world, right? Because if you think about it, the first car General Motors created was Volt, which was basically kind of a version of a gasoline car. Where, it, you know, so the long story short, I, you know, the after after I did all this research, I realized that to, today to me, it's not that I, it's not that I want to buy Tesla stock, but I, but I started to appreciate that they actually have a very good chance of success if they can survive over the next, you know, year or two, you know, because this is the company losing a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And if you go into recession, uh, they may have to issue a lot of, you know, and the stock price, their stock price declines, they may have to issue shares, which would they lose shareholders. And I also appreciate that actually that I, th the reason I actually got, was comfortable buying model three, because I realized it's very unlikely that Tesla will go bankrupt because that was a, something I was worried about. Um, because most likely somebody will buy them. So if the stock price declines and they, you know, and they have financial losses, some, you know, they will be valuable. The equity will be valuable to somebody. If you are equity investor today, you may still end up losing money. But as a car owner, I, I worry about less about them going bankrupt now because somebody will buy them and continue to service, you know, to service the car. Um, but also going through this, you know, 29-page article, I realized that ICE makers, you know, the kind of the, the traditional car makers to me are uninvestable today because I am not sure which ones of them are going to be Nokias and, and Blackberries and which ones of them are going to be kind of the Samsungs. So because if you look, look at what happened in 2008, so Nokia and Blackberry basically became irrelevant and for all you care, it's you know they might have as well gone bankrupt, right? Because the the uh, the core businesses that made them a lot of money kind of disappeared. So they're making money now in 
doing something else. And companies like Samsung actually that was also made a lot of smart, you know, dumb phones, actually was able to survive and actually prosper, you know, in the transition from dumb phones to smartphones. So when you look at the car makers today, it's very difficult for me to say right now which ones of them are going to become Nokia's and which one of them are going to become Samsung's. So therefore, to me, that sector became uninvestable. Got it. Yeah, and it's been so fascinating watching from um, you know from the sidelines. It's not something that you know we would ever invest in or short or whatever, but just kind of sitting from the sidelines and watching all the action that's been happening in Tesla. It's been you know quite entertaining. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on Elon Musk? Uh, <laughs> I think it's it's a very a very complex thoughts. On one side. If you just look at what he has accomplished, you're at awe, right? Because just even beyond Tesla, just look at SpaceX and you say, oh my God, he's able to he's able to make rockets that are 10 times cheaper than NASA could or so, you know, the competitors. And um, and also he can you know he can, he can set a rocket to space and then land it on a barge that's that's in the middle of the ocean, which is incredible. It's uh, it's a Incredible accomplishment. Definitely, hundred percent. And 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 then if you look what he did at Tesla, in you and and you start to appreciate what he did. It's a, it's not just he just what's what's important to understand. It's not that he just created another car company that runs on gasoline. He basically created a he created a car that's uh, you know where they design a battery and where, you know that has a this run a completely different technology which they had to create. Um, in addition to that, they built out uh, superchargers across not just the United States, but Europe. In addition to that, they designed uh, a computer that is basically self-driving, you know, is in charge of self-driving or for Model 3. And the, uh, the processor, you know, they created the processor that is as good or, you know, arguably better than NVIDIA, who knows. But it's as good as NVIDIA's processor. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, they... Uh, and vertically integrated. Uh, if you think about uh, automobile, automobile companies today, none of them are vertically integrated. In fact, they used to be vertically integrated, and then they basically kind of sold off the auto, uh, auto suppliers. And now they are kind of, they're basically in the business of uh, assembling and marketing, kind of engineering, assembling, and marketing cars, and wholesaling cars, basically, where Tesla is completely vertically integrated. And by the way, in addition to that, he, com you know, he completely, when he created Tesla or uh, Tesla the company and Tesla cars, he did it from a first principles perspective, where basically, he, you know, you have a blank piece of paper, and you say, if you knew, knew nothing about cars, how would you create an electric car today? And think about, you know, aside from our, you know, from the car, think about how they sell their cars, right? So, you know, General Motors does not sell its own cars. It's basically, you know, it's a wholesale of cars to its franchisees, you know, dealers. Tesla uh, decided that they want to control the whole process. And so, therefore, they took Apple's model where they basically have a store and, and um and they, you know, they, you know, they sell you the car, they service the car, and then they, it's at some point in time they're going to try to, you know, uh, you know, help you to upgrade to another Tesla. So, if you look for what he has accomplished at Tesla, it's absolutely mind-boggling. But, and here's the but: um, uh, the problem with Tesla is that's a company that's losing a lot of money, and for Tesla to succeed as a company, uh, they can basically raise money two ways. They need to raise money. And they can only raise money two ways. They can issue equity or they can issue debt. Um, they can issue limited amount of debt just because, again, this is a company that's losing money. So therefore, he has to rely on the kindness of equity markets. So to do this, Elon Musk always has to tell a story to keep the price high. And sometimes he tells stories that will, you know, that are, that are, may happen just later than he originally expects them to happen. And sometimes he tells stories that are borderline lies. 
And, and it's very difficult to distinguish between them. I'll be very honest, because if you look at uh, when he announced Model 3 in 2005, I forget the, like, but let's say by 2007, they were supposed to be producing the half a million cars or a million cars. Well, I think they will be, you know, we are in 2009, and in the fourth quarter of this year, they will be, they will be producing roughly half a million cars, you know, uh, you know, at the run rate of half a million cars a year, which is, to be honest, it's a still, like, yes, it's a three years late, but it's still incredible achievement. Um, because he's the largest, you know, EV maker today in the world. Um, at the same time, there's you start thinking about some of the promises he made, and you know, maybe you know a lot of these promises will not come through. So there's a this two sides to Elon Musk, where he's kind of promoting his, you know, he's telling you tr some stories that you don't know if if he's uh, intentionally lying or not. You know, really, I really can't tell. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, that's why he gets in trouble with you know with some investors because they look at him and they say, well, he's kind of like a charlatan a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So I, he's a, he's a very polarizing figure. I guess. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, like I said, it's been definitely entertaining. I think 2018 and 2019 has been um, you know especially with everything with Tesla, it's definitely been. Um, not boring. So that's great. So I want to, you know, kind of start to wrap it up here. And one of my, mm -hmm. you know, I really enjoy this conversation. Um, you know, and your background is incredible, especially going from, the, you know, Russia and then coming to the United States and then, you know, going from analyst to CIO to, C to CEO. And um, it's definitely, you know, so inspiring to listen to that. One of my closing questions I always ask people when they come on the podcast is if you had to give advice to somebody listening on how to get better, right? Not even just investing, but I guess, you know, continue to climb in life. Um, what would you tell them? You want to be deliberate. Um, let me, I'll give you this analogy. So, uh, I've been skiing for a long time. You know, I live in Denver, so, you know, close to the mountains. And for a long time, I noticed that my skiing does not, does not improve because all I do, I get on the mountain, I go down the mountain. And then I started to ask myself, how can I get better? And I realized for me to get better, I, well, I had to take ski lessons. After I took ski lessons, I knew now I now now I knew what's right, what's what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do. But the second step was actually I started to deliberately practicing. So every time I would go down the mountain, I would start thinking about okay my form. Okay, you know I would start and I would start working. Okay, uh, on this one I'm going to be focusing on turns. Okay, on this one, I'm going to be focusing on uh, trying to create as little friction as possible. So this deliberate practice allowed me, kind of, be, kind of gave me, uh, became kind of uh, because deliberate practice has a feedback loop. You know, so you're doing something, and you're, and then you're, you are start thinking about, okay, am I doing it right? And you start self-correcting, and therefore, when I go down the mountain now, with every run, I improve just a little bit. You know, just a little bit because because of the feedback mechanism. So I think the same thing with investing um, or anything in life, I guess. Um, when I invest, I constantly, uh, you know, I constantly think about okay about our pro not about our decision making process, and I constantly ask myself, how can I improve our process? Uh, what tweaks can I make to it? And then you know we analyze our decisions, and uh, so we try to be kind of everything we do, we try to be thoughtful and deliberate about it. And therefore, that's I think that's the only way to get better. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You know, the basic blocking and tackling and, you know, staying persistent and, um, you know, just working at it every day. I think that's really great. Well, Vitaly, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has definitely been uh, one of our top shows for me, and it's been awesome getting a chance to talk to you. How can people reach out to you or get some more information on you if they want to learn about your firm or just learn more about you? Okay, well, let me give you a few websites. So our corporate website is imausa.com. Um, my blog, you can reach me, you know, you can read my articles on contrarianedge.com. And uh, we have a podcast, which is really not a podcast, more like uh, articles on tape or oh, <laughs> uh, audio articles. It's a investor.fm 
or if you just go to the uh, iTunes store, uh, you know, to your you know podcast app, look for the the Intellectual Investor Podcast, and you just basically get to listen to my articles instead of straining your eyes. Yeah, you, know, you can strain your ears, I guess, instead. So <laughs> that is great. I love that. Well, Vitaly, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on the Focus Compounding Podcast, and I want to thank everybody for tuning in with us here today. Definitely check out his stuff. He's got. A- ton of information out there on the internet about um, you know his writings and everything related to investing. I have read Active Investing as well, so definitely check out those two books and uh, check out the podcast as well if you want to listen to his stuff. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with me and Vitaly here today. We will see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.